Hello everyone, it's May 7th, 2019. Okay, so we have a bit more information on what happened with that exploding dragon. Not much, but we still gotta talk about it. Also, how much do you know about Brazil's space program? That's what I thought. Today, we will learn. And, lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 209 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So I finally dialed in my low-carb fried chicken recipe. Well, we have to talk about food. So how do you make low-carb fried chicken? Yeah. So you dip the chicken in egg, and then you dipped it in crushed up uh, pork rinds. And it sounds really gross, but as long as you eat it hot, it's genuinely really good. Like, maybe better than my normal fried chicken recipe. That sounds awesome to me, actually. <laughs> maybe I just like yeah. pork rinds a lot. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of pork rinds, but I, I eat them because it's like the only real crunch I get. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan either, but it's mostly the idea of dipping chicken in pig. <laughs> like, I don't know why I uh, think of that. Yeah. But. Really, once, once it's fried, it has such a nice such a nice crust like it it really works well like i'm surprised at how well it works and there's nothing else i guess yeah because if you want low carbs i can't think of any other substitute you could probably do almond flour that wouldn't be too bad but yeah you just need so much of it compared to how much protein there is like Mm -hmm. yeah what about cricket flour which i hear a lot about would that work I don't know. That's a really good question. I would love to try that. Cricket powder is, yeah, like a lot of chitin and a lot of Mm -hmm. protein. Well, there you go. Eat more crickets. (laughs) I want to eat more bugs. I really do. And by more, I mean any. Any that aren't a mistake, because I currently have no bugs in my diet. I think when I was five, I ate an ant once, and that was about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I ate an ant that had already been sprayed with Raid. It was not good. I'll usually, when I go jogging, eat an insect or two, maybe once a week. Hopefully everyone's listening during lunch. (laughs) That was a good discussion about bugs as food. Uh, But let's just talk about something a little bit less gross. Let's talk about this week in spaceflight history. Yay. So yeah, we got some winners we think we got, and we got one new winner. Yeah, like one true new winner. Yeah, so so we have like three uh, pillars of this week in spaceflight history, and then we have one one noob, which is fantastic. So uh, Chubby, Ben Hallard, and Valentin Frank are all familiar names. And then the one true sheep on Twitter also guessed correctly. And boy, do I love that username. <laughs> so uh, this week in spaceflight history is the 10th of May, 1967. It's that famous M2F2 crash. So M2F2 and other lifting bodies were, you know, quote unquote, discovered um, when the U.S. was experimenting with the shape of nose cones on rockets. So initially we thought that a pointed nose cone would be the best, but actually turns out that if you fly a blunt nose cone or like a rounded nose cone, um, you actually get um, better flight performance. And what's interesting is that we we realize that these round noses at some angles of attack, they actually contribute some amount of lift. And so uh, the U.S. decided to make an entire airplane uh, out of this shape and came up with this classic lifting body shape, which is basically uh, potato shaped. And uh, we, we had a number of lifting bodies that we were experimenting with, notably M2F2 and uh, HL10. So we're flying these out at Edwards Air Force Base, basically slinging them under the wing 
uh, of a larger aircraft, dropping them mid-flight and gliding them down to the ground. Well, in this case, um, Bruce Peterson was flying M2F2. You might recognize his name because uh, he, he went and did some other stuff. But before this, he actually was a test pilot for the uh, Mercury uh, landing wing, the, the Regalo wing, which is the idea where you can land a Mercury capsule on land with wheels by deploying a parafoil, which is super cool. I'm really bummed that that never worked out. <laughs> yeah. But so anyway, this is uh, Bruce Peterson's fourth flight uh, in an M2F2. And, you know, it looks like a potato, it flies like a potato, and it had this um, lateral instability that was a known issue. And so he's coming in on his final approach. He ends up um, experiencing some extra role that he had to really fight against. And as he comes out of it, you know, they start telling him, okay, you need to get your landing gear out. And he's like, okay, before we worry about that, there's a helicopter in front of me. I'm afraid I'm going to hit it. His chase pilot, who was flying with him, said, no, you're good. It's it's farther away than it seems. And he kept calling for them to move it. So they ended up getting the helicopter to move out of the way. But all this was just too much distraction. And he ended up not deploying his landing gear soon enough. It was partially deployed before he basically belly flops into the dry lake bed at Edwards. So he bounces back up into the air and he does... A really clever thing. He engages his landing rockets. So they have rockets on the back of these vehicles to actually pick up some extra airspeed, um, to add controllability and to allow them to flare properly when they're, when they're landing. So he fires the rockets to try to get some extra speed, um, to give his landing gear extra time to deploy. I believe, I, I don't know if that was actually something that was going through his mind, um, but also to try to get better control of his vehicle so then he comes back down a second time and basically starts somersaulting down the dry lake bed and he survived he broke some bones he ended up losing an eye because the canopy came off and he ended up sliding down the desert on his face um and so he you know lost a bunch of skin on his face and lost an eye uh, or or lost vision in his eye he he ended up getting an infection Mm. Uh, but he he survived uh, I, so I have to mention the $6 million man, you know, that's not what happened to him. He ended up, uh, not walking away from the crash, but he survived. So I will link to Amy Shear titles, uh, YouTube video because she's got some fantastic, uh, photos of the vehicle. And yeah, that's a short and quick this week in spaceflight history. What is our clue then for next week? All right. Next week in 1963, the question is, how do you throw a party in space? And the answer is, of course, you bring a plunger and a balloon. <laughs> Okay, as usual, I got nothing. Do you have any ideas, Dennis? I, no. <laughs> I love the clue. I don't know why I love it. It's a, a mental image that's just delightful. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to finding out what the answer is. <laughs> Next week in 1963, how do you throw a party in space, bring a plunger, and a balloon? Well, if you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So in the news, Dragon, uh, we have a little bit more on what happened to the Dragon on the test stand that blew up, but not a lot more, but we have some confirmation about what the problem is not. Would you say that's a fair way of putting it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, well, so Sam in the chat says, is there even any additional info to base speculation on than there was last week? The answer is just barely, but we're going to give it our best shot. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, they, they did make a statement, and it wasn't a lot of... 
explanation, but hey, you know, it was a statement. So we know that we talked about COPVs possibly being the issue and how, you know, that was kind of the fan theory, but, you know, it didn't seem super likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they more or less eliminated that as uh, as a potential cause. They specifically said that the COPVs at this point uh, in the testing wouldn't have been overly stressed. And, you know, even if they were like they're not inside of a <laughs> of yeah, liquid oxygen a tank, tank of liquid oxygen. So it should be right. OK. And this was Hans Kandigsman, right? Like that's who specifically mm-hmm. uh, gave us all this information during a press conference. And he had also said that he they are still confident that it's not the Draco thrusters. So so this is kind of where the I guess the speculation comes in, because if it's not those two things, then what else could have caused such a huge explosion? And so, Ben, you were saying maybe like a fuel line leak. Which... Well, so he, here's. Uh, here's my thought. Um, if you look at the potato footage that has uh, been leaked, the first frame where there's something going wrong, there's a big white spot right in the center of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody, myself included, assumed that it was an explosion. Well, it's not. If you look at it, there's it actually casts a shadow. So it's white because it's pegging the pixel values the you know the pixels are are overexposing mm-hmm. so it looks white but it casts a shadow so it's not an explosion to me what seems most reasonable is that either well that somewhere along the line i don't know if it's inside or outside of the vehicle right i don't know if it's the vehicle or ground support equipment but i'm guessing that there was a fuel leak somewhere and that that is a cloud of propellant and then you know something in the vicinity sparked it off so it you know if it's not the super dracos if it's not a copv that's the only other thing that makes sense to me is a is a propellantly you have a much better eye than me because i can't i i'm watching it and i mean i'm watching it again just for the sake of trying and i don't it's just happening too fast so are you freezing on a frame yeah yeah you gotta go frame by frame yeah it's tricky if the pixels are all saturated then like it's tough to see it for what it really is mm-hmm. and so that's why i'm also tempted to you know in my brain i just keep seeing a an explosion happening but I too have to agree that what else could it be? Some amount of that hypergolic came in contact with itself and that instigated the rest of the explosion. That sounds good to me. I don't know what else could cause that. But do you think maybe there could have been some kind of, you know, internal explosion or something going on that could have happened that we can't see internally? Then this happens. Like if you have that that much time before the actual explosion, then maybe that gives SpaceX more to work with because, uh, you know, they have all kinds of telemetry or whatever. So they can kind of create this nice little fault tree and they have plenty of time from the inciting event to the next one and the next one and the next one. But maybe it all happened within a hundredth of a second. And I guess that's that's kind of what I would like to know, really. Um, if they could just say that much, and that would be nice because I guess that would just give me more to speculate about. <laughs> <laughs> How quickly did this actually happen? Because you can't really tell mm-hmm. by watching the video. You just see the explosion, but you don't see what happened prior to that. There could have been a few steps where X led to Y, Y led to Z, and then Z let the boom. And yeah, and it's it's almost certainly that, right? <laughs> well, I mean, this I guess it doesn't yeah. seem like a single point failure. The number of steps, I guess, is kind of what I was just thinking. Yeah. No, I I think you're right. I think it's definitely not a single point failure kind of thing. Yeah, that thing definitely casts a shadow. I'm I'm flicking back and forth between frames. And and it's tough to tell because as soon as there's that much change, the compression makes everything else much lower resolution. But like if you look on the ground, there's clearly a shadow. So it looks like you've got two frames worth of shadow before there's an actual explosion. I don't know, because the point where there is an explosion and you, and you can see it, I still kind of see a shadow, I th- think I do. So Well, right, because 
yeah, well, because at that point, it's mostly going to be smoke, right? So you, you go like, you've got nothing, and then the first frame after, or the first change, you can see a big white cloud or a big bright cloud, but it still, it still looks a little red on the edges. Tough to tell if that's artifacting or not, but then there's definitely a shadow on the ground, if not on the test platform itself. And then the second changed frame it looks like the cloud has moved up and to the left and then the and the cl the shadow on the ground gets darker and then the frame after that looks like a genuine explosion like the change from frame one to frame two is very small but the change from frame two to frame three is huge if that's all an explosion then it's an explosion that accelerates very quickly um, which, you know, feels more like a sawdust explosion or a cornstarch explosion where you get a little bit of a seed and then it accelerates rapidly. You know, so, so maybe that's, you know, very fuel rich propellant leak that then makes the leak worse and you get a better balance of, of oxidizer and propellant. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, it's, I think it's foolish to come to any conclusions based on this footage, but that's kind of what it looks like to me. We could point out, too, that the only other, as far as taking one brief respite from speculation, is that the anomaly happened a full half a second before the Super Draco thrusters actually fired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which so, is really encouraging. Right. Because it means that it's not the big contained explosion devices. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It would seem to indicate that it might be once the fuel got pumping within those lines that maybe mm -hmm. that's what caused it. Right. So once it started circulating, then something happened. And then be before we uh, get off of this uh, segment, uh, I had a, a quick back and forth with somebody on Twitter, and I, I would love to know if anybody else has a better um, understanding of this than I do. So this is uh, uh, Steve on Twitter. Um, asked if the Super Draco propellants would have been emptied and refilled after the flight um so like basically is this fresh propellants and i said I, I would be really surprised if that wasn't the case and then steve asked so just to confirm the capsule flew loaded with those propellants even if they weren't required um, they are only there for the abort option and my understanding is that dragon has got a unified propellant uh, system where the Super Dracos and the Dracos run off of the same propellants. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I could be wrong about this. Let me know if anybody knows better. But my understanding is that there are four, what do they call them? Quads, maybe? But there are four, um, like. Oh, the pods? No, not the pods. Like, what are you? Uh, the, the pods kind of stick out. But yeah, yeah. propellant wise, there the propellant lines are split up into four segments, um, and each segment is kind of unified with its own tanks, its own helium pressurizing tanks, and that propellant system feeds, you know, the two super Dracos, and then I think it's four small Dracos, and then that system is replicated four times around the vehicle, and so it's unified propellant, but it's split up into four different sections. So if anybody can cast some light on whether there are tanks that wouldn't have been filled when it flew to station that needed to be emptied and refilled. I don't know exactly what um, what Steve was getting at there as a potential as a potential cause, but um, I thought it was an interesting thing that I knew a little bit about, but not enough about to be able to be informative so if anybody could provide some extra info i'd love to hear it i think so are you speculating as to whether or not the tanks were ever emptied in the first place and then mm -hmm. refilled because i yeah. imagine they would almost certainly do that just for safety yeah. reasons right mm -hmm. right exactly 
Yeah. Yeah. So that would be my first thought. I don't think they would ever work on these things and do whatever, you know, with full tanks. Just yeah. seems yeah. really, really risky. Yeah, the level yeah, of, you know, precision you need for these. This is rocket science. You can't just... <laughs> eh, we got some old hyper gauze in there, though. I'm sure they're fine. Uh, yeah. You kind of shake it. Oh, yeah, it sounds like we got about <laughs> half a tank. Go ahead. Let's do an uh, abbreviated short and sweet, just two of them this week. Our first one is a CRS-17 makes it to station after several setbacks. With an initial launch date of April 26th, the Dragon's resupply mission CRS-17 successfully lifted off early May 4th for the ISS after several delays. The first delay was in order to get more favorable synchronization with the ISS. The launch was then postponed an additional two days due to a power failure on board the ISS. After repairs were made, the launch date was set for May 3rd, but in the final minutes before lift off, there was yet another power failure, this time aboard the recovery drone ship positioned off the Florida coast. Once that issue was resolved, CRS-17 was able to finally launch. So just a series of weird delays. Yeah, phew. Not the usual weather delays. Mm -hmm. Firefly successfully tests Alpha Rocket's upper stage. Firefly successfully fired the upper stage of its Alpha Rocket's Lightning One engine for 300 seconds last Thursday. The test involved firing conditions that would subject the rocket to those expected during an upper stage boost. The Alpha Rocket has a capacity to launch up to one ton to LEO, and the company hopes for its first launch before the end of this year from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Although that'll be a little tough, <laughs> probably, to hit that time, but still cool. We have a really cool data relay. We're going to be talking about the Brazilian space program, and who better to talk to us about that than Anderson DeNova. So welcome back, Anderson. <laughs> Hello. Good to be back. Last time you talked to us about, was it uh, specifically, well, it was Launch Tower Umbilicals, right? Do I remember that correctly? That's right. For the Saturn V, yeah. yes. So uh, this time, this is, uh, well, this is as in your wheelhouse more for you than anyone else because you are Brazilian, so you know about this more than any of us. So we're going to be talking about the Brazilian space program. Yeah, I feel like we need to make a joke about how this document started out with the Brazilian pages and we we finally got it down to what? Five, ten, Brazilian ten pages. pages. Yeah, yeah we're, st Brazilian. we're still at ten pages. Um, but yeah, th this is going to be a long one because um, Anderson and I worked quite a long time to try to get this down to a manageable level because uh any space program that's been running this long is just so so big so that's when you get when you try to squeeze in uh the whole of one country's uh space effort in one mm -hmm. episode hopefully it's not going to be way too long oh it will be but that's okay we'll just deal with it <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing i guess to talk about is the country's first steps in space exploration so that is where the document begins and i think that is a good logical place to start yeah so so i, I think just to to help out the listener uh, just give you a, a brief uh overview of the whole timeline so you have a sense of what what i'm going to be talking about at like a table of contents type of thing so the well first one we're going to talk about the First few steps, that's the, a little bit boring, but we're going to get over it quickly. Then we go to the Sonda rocket family, which is the first one of uh, the vehicles uh, that we tried to develop. And then a little bit on the launch center, the Alcantara launch, launch center, uh, which I have some news, fresh news on it. I'll, I'll leave it to the end. And then a little bit on the VLS, which is the vehicle that, uh, well, there was a big accident. I'll talk about that too. Uh, then the data collecting satellites, which are simple satellites, uh, interesting. And then down there, we go to Seabirds, the a partnership with China. Talk a little bit about crude space. It's not long. And then the Alcantara uh, Cyclone Space, which was our well, very last 
a big effort, let's call it. Uh, a couple more satellites, and then the the very last one, the L seventy five, which I think it's a it's an interesting rocket engine that is under development. So I think that's the big uh, timeline. So beginning at the top, it's gonna be a little bit of uh, an alphabet soup. So uh, bear with me. So in nineteen forty five, uh, the DCTA, which is uh, DCTA. Uh, the Science and Aerospace Technology Department was founded, and that was with the intent of developing uh, a capable workforce and just aerospace-related technology. And that began after a series of discussions with folks at MIT. And it was uh, there was an initiative called the Smith Plan that resulted in two institutions in 1950. So the first one is the ITA, the Aeronautics Technology Institutes, uh, which still exists, and the IPD, which is the an R and D institute, let's call it. Interesting facts: the the IPD spun off as what is currently Embraer, the well Embraer for mm-hmm. uh, the American listener, uh, the aircraft uh, development uh, company. And another interesting technology achievement was uh, the alcohol-driven car engine, which uh, was developed by this department in the 70s due to the oil crisis. So I thought that was interesting to uh, tidbit. Uh, okay, so in parallel to that, in '49, uh, the IME Military Institute of Engineering in Rio de Janeiro, the Dr. Edmund Brum was a Frenchman invited professor. He taught undergrads, and they got really excited about space. So their senior project was a small solid rocket uh, motor, and I think that was Brazilians first. So I went through a lot of records, and that's that's what seems like it. It's pretty small, so. You could say it was like an amateur type of rocket. In 61, uh, there was the uh, GOCNIA, GOCNI, uh, was founded. And this was a group commission for space activities. And that later became INPE, which is the National Space Research Institute. And it still exists. And you see that it's uh, responsible for a lot of the satellite development. Okay, so let's start building actual stuff. So in 64, the Ministry of Aeronautics, Aeronautics kicked off uh, yet another work group called the uh, GTEP. And among its objectives, it started uh, Brazil's first international cooperation agreement between the CTA, INPE, and NASA. And that will lead to the development of the Sonda rocket family. Uh, it also led to the construction of the CLBI, which is the Barreira do Inferno Launch Center. Uh, one of two that I'll speak of. So the Celebi is located in the city of Parnamirim, near Natal, in Rio Grande do Norte. And it is at 5.92 degrees inclination, so pretty well located. Currently, it provides tracking support for the subsequently built Alcantara Launch Center and the Kuru Launch Center also, the ESA one in French Guiana. So to this day, there were 301 launches and the highest attitude reached was uh, 1,100 kilometers. And since the population density around the center uh, grown substantially, it was discontinued as a launch complex and kept only for tracking purposes. Now, uh, the Nike Apache, uh, am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the standard NASA sounding rocket was the first rocket launched 
in 65 at the inauguration of the center. And it was a two-stage solid rocket motor. Uh, it could carry 45 kilograms of payload to 160 kilometers uh, apogee. So the main mission objective was to collect data for electrons and ions density measurements and essentially to characterize uh, ultraviolet radiation flow in the ionosphere. And the first stage was designed by Aerolab and the second by Orbital HK. I just thought that was interesting. Now going to the actual sonda rocket family. So the sonda 1 was first launched in 67 and it was developed in, by the military in partnership with Avibras, uh, a Brazilian company. It was officially the first Brazilian-made full-fledged rocket. So uh, it consisted of a two-stage solid rocket with a max altitude of 75, sorry, 70 kilometers apogee, a thrust of 27 kilonewtons, and it would carry 4.5 kilograms of payload. So not, not too big. And it was highly based off of the American Arcus, a all-purpose rocket for collecting atmospheric soundings. Very nice backronym. And the Sonda 2, interestingly, was not based off of the Sonda 1. It was inspired by the Black Branch 3 and 4. So these were Canadian rockets. Now, the, the context behind that is interesting. So NASA, ha NASA had proposed uh, to the INPI uh, a project within the Brazilian territory for radiation mapping of the magnetic anomaly. So this is intended to support the Apollo program. So standby Black Branch 4 rocket was kept in case of the men's spacecraft center back in Houston required further characterization of an anomaly in that region. So it was essentially just support work. And that required Bristol Aerospace, the manufacturer of the rocket, to give training to Brazilian personnel as part of the agreement. So the training sessions went to a great degree of detail down to the manufacturer assembly and operation of the rocket. So naturally, this led to a complete technology transfer to Brazil, intentional or not. And that resulted in this, the Sonda 2. So wait, before before we get away from Sonda 1, or I guess it was Sonda 2 that was used to study the South Atlantic anomaly, right? It wasn't actually Sonda 2, it was the Black Brent. And then the Black oh, Brent oh, was oh. sort of copied into the Sonda 2. Oh, okay. Yeah. So before we, before we get too far, I wanted to talk about the South Atlantic anomaly because... Um, it's a really weird thing that we have to deal with. In fact, the ISS flies through the South Atlantic anomaly when its beta angle is, you know, at a certain place. Or not beta angle, because that's pointing at the sun. When it's, um, you know, as it sweeps across the globe. And when that happens, they actually don't do EVAs um, when they're flying through the South Atlantic anomaly because it exposes things to higher radiation. You're more likely to have electronics fail and you're more likely to, or you're going to incur higher radiation costs to your astronauts. And so basically what it is, is it's a little corner of the Van Allen belts that dips down low into the Earth's atmosphere, to the upper atmosphere, but you know, still it's this really low part of the Van Allen radiation belts. And it's really cool that we happen to have a burgeoning um, uh, space uh, program when we needed to go up and, and check it out. So it's really cool that Brazil was able to support NASA's you know, space race by flying rockets up in, because who else can do it? You know, it's basically, mm -hmm. you're going to be limited by where you're launching these rockets. And it, I, I think it's a, a really nice little um, bit of serendipity that Brazil was able to do this. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, they, well, obviously it was one of the countries in the, in the agreement. So they were actually using a series of locations and 
uh, each one of them will characterize a, a spot. So it's, it's an interesting way of mapping something very large scale. Okay, so down to the Sonda 2. Uh, so it was a single stage rocket about the same length of the iteration one. So that's four meters. It was, it was a larger diameter though. It was 300 millimeters and much heavier. So it was uh, up to 360 kilograms. So an order of magnitude greater than the, the previous version. Uh, it, launched, it launched at 36 kilonewtons of thrust uh, with an apogee of 90 kilometers. So we're getting to space. So it was the first Brazilian made composite based rocket motor and the first successful launch took place in 1970. So three years after the first Sonda 1. So we're moving quite quickly if you think about versions, iterations, right? So in 69, the IAEA, Aeronautics and Space Institute, was created to execute the Ministry of Aeronautics projects, and it still does exist. And I'll talk about a little bit further. And the Sonda 3 came to be. So it was a two-stage solid rocket motor. You had two variants. The payload range was uh, from 60 to 140 kilograms, and that reached 600 or 250 apogee, respectively. So this, the, this was the third iteration, and it launched in 1976. That was six years after. So you see that they're, they're growing uh, bit by bit, but they're all still solid motors. And that's a, a, a theme that you recognize throughout the whole of the, the, the program. So in 71, the COBAI, Brazilian Commission for Space Activities was created and that was to take lead of the space program in place of INPE, its civil counterpart. So you can see that there's a lot of institutions and, and well, a lot of new things being established, but that's not, it doesn't seem like a very productive way just because the use later on in the, when you see that the accident happens, a little bit of that led to uh, complications in governance, let's call it. And, that was listed as one of the potential causes of the accident. So the Sonda 4, it was also a two-stage vehicle, also solid rocket motors. It carried 500 kilograms of payload up to 730 kilometers apogee. So this this version, uh, the first stage had a three-axis attitude control. So it's a bit more complex. And it was only launched later in 1984. So eight years after the last version. Okay, so I'll, I'll move a little bit backwards in time just to keep the timeline so in 1978 the MECB complete Brazilian space mission was set up and this was a, a, a big uh, uh, program let's call it so with the the primary objective was to set up a launch complex in a more remote location uh, since the CLB was not uh, already uh, being used for launches and to develop and build uh, a satellite launching vehicle which is also the name of the VLS uh, in Portuguese, obviously, and to develop and launch two satellites for environmental data surveying. So that's the SCD, SCD, and two for remote sensing. So that that was the, the that program was a big package of all of the things that we carried out throughout the the next couple of years. Now the Alcântara Launch Center. Uh, was the first objective was motivated by the restrictions of the CLB, and so due to urban growth, as I mentioned before, it was created in 1982. It was built in the coast of Maranhão, the state of Maranhão, at 2.36 degrees inclination south of the equator. So just for reference, Kuru is at uh, 5.23 
degrees north. So it's quite close to the equator and it covers a pretty large area. It's about 620 square kilometers, which is roughly uh, the size of St. Petersburg or a bit larger than Salt Lake City. So quite a large portion of land. Uh, I'm not sure how this is calculated because uh, I looked at a map and it, looking at Google Maps, it looks like four or five square kilometers. But from what I looked into it, uh, it seems that there's some, uh, it, it's complicated because they've taken over some lands that belong to the natives and to some uh, communities. So it, it's, I think this is why when you look at the map, it, it doesn't look like the whole of the 620 square kilometers, but I think it, there's some dispute still to be had. So there's a, a political thing going on there. So according to astronautics.com, the first launch took place in 1990, and there have been overall 83 launches, uh, with the last one in 2014. So now go into the, the VLS, which is the satellite launch vehicle. That's the let's call it our Saturn V. It's our big one. Mm -hmm. So it was capable of a thousand kilonewtons of thrust and capable of lifting 100 to 350 kilograms of payload up to a thousand, well, uh, kilometers or 250 kilometers at high circular orbits. And that's respectively, right? So a hundred, a thousand, 350, 250. Now the first stage consisted of uh, four cylindrical strap-on boosters around the center second stage. And on top of that, uh, there was the third and fourth stages. So it was all solid motors and the strap-on boosters were highly based off of the Sonda 4 first stage. The first stage was also known as the cluster. One of the biggest challenges in developing the cluster was the precision of the ignition of the four simultaneously lit boosters. So in order to gain confidence in that, they develop a one-third scale version of the VLS, mm -hmm. and that was built by Yaya and launched in 1989 from the CLB, which is the, the former uh, launch complex. In the third stage, they had uh, three subsystems. Uh, so the main propulsion, the equipment bay, and the controls bay. In the controls bay, uh, there was a pair of bang-bang attitude control thrusters to account for the role of the vehicle. Uh, so these were nitrogen tetroxide and UDMH based. And in the equipment bay, they had the essentially the electrical equipment and in the same bay it was also located the nitrogen based cold gas thrusters so four uh solid rocket motors for uh, which they call the spin-up system and that would be to impart uh, rotational momentum to the fourth stage as required so depending on the payload and that was prior to the fourth stage ignition so that was for gyroscopic uh, stabilization so Two test launches uh, have ever taken place since the beginning of the development in 85. So the first launch attempt was in 97 and the second in 99. I'll, I'll switch a little bit to the spacecrafts just because of uh, timeline to keep uh, it consistent. And then I'll go back to the VLS and then we talk about the, the accident. So the uh, Oscar, I think, the Oscar 17, that's what it's called. It was a microset uh, designed and built by this one guy in a garage. Uh, his name was uh, Julio Torres de Castro. He's an, he was an electrical engineer, and he built this amateur radio satellite, and it had a digital orbiting voice encoder. That's why it's called Dove. 
and it was designed to emit the synthesized voice message and also telemetry data. And it was a box-shaped satellite with solar panels on on each face. And it was essentially a cube by uh, 200 by 200 by 200 millimeters. And each face of the cube had uh, the panels and it weighed about uh, 12, actually 13 kilograms. So not too big. And the, sp the spacecraft was designed for educational purposes. And it, it's listed as sending out peace messages, which I thought was interesting. And it launched on board of an Ariane 4 in 1990, together with the OSCAR, so the orbiting satellite carrying amateur radio satellites. So I thought this was super interesting because this is just essentially one guy in his garage and he built what can be maybe called the first Brazilian satellite. And then uh, going to big things, the SCD or SCD, data collecting satellites. So there's the one and two. So in 1993, SCD-1 was launched. It was launched on a Pegasus, the orbital Pegasus rocket. And it was part of a four satellite constellation with two environmental data gathering sets. And those being the SCDs and two remote sensing sets. Now, it was designed for 14 passes per day over the Brazilian territory. Uh, it was spin-tabilized, and it was designed by INPE with a design life of one year, but it seems that it's still kicking up to this day. Mm. And cool. the SCD-1 consists of uh, an octagonal prism covered with uh, photovoltaic cells. So the photovoltaic cells themselves were chosen as an experiment, so the design was new at the time. And the mission was part of its qualification. So it is passively cooled uh, via thermal tapes and special paint. The attitude control is done from the ground based off of a magnetometer and solar sensors. So it uses a magnetic coil for the spin angle control, uh, which I believe is a magnet torquer. And it seems like a rather simple design. It essentially gathers and relays data from the ground base equipment. So the successor, the SCD-2, was launched later in 98, also on a Pegasus rocket. Going back to the timeline a little bit before that, in 93, the VS-40 rocket was launched, and that was a two-stage sounding rocket that was basically a modified version of the third and fourth stage of VLS-1. So that's why I thought it was relevant to mention it. So a little bit of development on top of the VLS. And then in 94, uh, very much based on the American model, the Brazilian Space Agency, IAB, uh, a civilian-run agency was set up, and that was with the intent of elaborating and executing the nation's space program, now called PENAI. So uh, let's call it the MACB 2.0. <laughs> so in 97, uh, the VS-30, a single-stage sounding rocket based on the first stage of the Sonda 3, made its inaugural flight at the Alcantara base. And now we go back to the VLS for the launch attempts. So you can see a lot of solid rocket motors and and that's basically where the expertise of the Brazilian uh, space program lies. So in 97, uh, the testing of the VLS-1 began and that was a, a very in a very bold move. They put an actual satellite on the test launch and that was the SCD-2A. So I found numbers indicating that the VLS-1 cost 6.5 million US dollars at the time to launch. So that would be very competitive at the time because apparently the competing rockets were about 15 million. So uh, this dates to 2003. So while certainly outdated, it shows how, the, how driven these guys were to put uh, the rocket to work. 
as it could serve a potentially big market, so a third of the cost. Yeah. So it experienced a first stage failure, which led to an, an abort from ground. And subsequently in 1999, another launch attempt took place, this time carrying the Sassi 2. I thought that was funny because Sassi is actually a, a uh, character from the, say, Brazilian mythology. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> look that up. It's interesting. So uh, during launch, the first stage behaved nominally, and so did the second stage. But a flame invaded the second stage block, and that led to an in-flight abort. So that's funny because they say that the second stage behaved nominally, but then it caught on fire. <laughs> so, yeah. So the SASI-2... Uh, was an INPE experimental scientific microset. It weighed about 85 kilograms, and it would measure about 4U uh, in microset units. So it carried four scientific payloads, uh, similarly to the SCD-1. It was spin-stabilized. Okay, and now we go into the... Just jumping into the VLS-1 disaster. So I, I, I use the word disaster here because this is this is really big mm -hmm. and I don't think uh, there's enough attention from the Brazilian people to, to this accident uh, as there should be because, well, you, you see it. Um, I'll just go over it and you share your thoughts. So the, the last attempt of launching the VLS took place on August 25th of 2003. Sorry, it was scheduled to take place in 25th of August. And the launch had already been delayed a few times. So in August 17th, uh, an operational briefing happened, followed by a wet dress rehearsal. And many difficulties were reported during the exercise. So that was essentially due to poor planning and weather. So both uh, two challenges. The weather is, uh, you find out, Maranhão is not a, a, it's not a great place for launches because it's very uh, humid. And it, I mean, it's great in terms of uh, location and and degree of inclination, but not great in terms of humidity because it's basically in the middle of the Amazon forest. So the second wet dress rehearsal happened in August 20th. And on August 22nd, and that's the, that's the big dates there, the VLS-1 was partially started. So the vehicle was at the integration tower. And it was during the pre-launch processing. The whole launch pad structure went up in flames. And that was instantly. With 21 engineers and technicians who were prepping the vehicle for launch. Uh, they were all inside. And mm. very little was left of the whole of the structure and the rocket. So the there were two satellites. Uh, there were the payloads for this mission. The SATEC, a GPS uh, signal receiver. And the UNOSAT an audio transmitter and they were both destroyed in the fire as well as they were already integrated in the vehicle uh and I, I went through the accident investigation report which is extremely interesting but completely in portuguese and <laughs> the report concluded that one of the strap-on boosters suddenly ignited and functioned nominally burning <sighs> for 40 seconds and that was inside the mobile integration Yikes. towers wow yeah so those uh, thorough analysis of the debris left over from the accident, and by X-raying the detonators, they could conclude that the most likely scenario was that the detonator of uh, booster A fired. So the detonator for booster C, the one diagonally opposite to A, did also show signs of uh, having fired, but after the main event, the heating pattern it suffered from booster A's exhaust was the likely cause. So it, it seems like the A actually fired first. 
So the investigation indicated the most likely causes to be one, induced uh, current through the firing line, or two, an electric discharge inside the carcass of the detonator, uh, the latter being the higher probability. So although very unlikely in tropical high humidity and high temperature weather locations, the tip of the rocket was covered by a, a plastic non-conductive prote protection, and that was filled with cold dry air to keep the satellites uh, in condition. And that might have led to the charge buildup in the whole of the vehicle. Also, the, the firing line was in close proximity to other systems' electric cables. And since it had unshielded cables, this would have allowed for electrostatic induction that could potentially activate the detonators. Another conclusion was uh, from the investigation report was the lack of funding and understaffing throughout the years played a significant role in lowering the safety of the operations, and which culminated in the disaster. Uh, so I wanted to bring up figures, but I, I couldn't find uh, the whole thing, the whole picture. But it looked like there were a lot of promises in terms of funding and staffing, and none of them actually happened. So these, these guys that were all killed in the fire, they were essentially like the, the heart, the core of our space program. So in a way, the, the space program died with them. So I think that's, uh, mm. yeah, that says a lot about how impactful that was. And that was essentially 21 people going to work and, and not coming back home because of uh, a series of mistakes. So I thought that was uh, worth going over with time. And I think if that happened in the States, I'm sure there will be all sorts of monuments and days to remember. And unfortunately, here is it. It's sort of non-known. Oh, the only thing people talk about here is uh, that it was probably, uh, they like to speculate and say that it was probably a espionage thing and it, mm. it got detonated by the US. So that's what, that's how, uh, that's the only thing that people quote unquote know about that. So that's, that's kind of sad because these guys essentially gave their lives for the, the program and you see, it didn't go too far after that. So the Seabirds now going to the next project. So that's a, a an agreement with China that happened in 84. So they signed a cooperation frame agreement. And four years later, the China-Brazil Earth Resources Satellites Program was established. That's the Seabirds. So in 1999, the first satellite, Seabirds 1, it was built by both countries and launched on uh, Long March 4B. And the uh, Seabirds 1 spacecraft weighed about 1,450 kilograms. So that's about 3,200 pounds. And measured 2 by 3 by 8 meters. So it's pretty large. It was built by the China Academy of Space Technology and INPE. And the spacecraft was powered by a single solar array providing 1,100 watts of electricity for the satellite system. The, the instrument suit aboard the Seabirds 1 spacecraft consisted of three systems. Uh, the wide field imager that produced uh, visible light to near infrared images, a high resolution CCD camera for multispectral imaging, and the infrared multispectral scanner. Now, Seabirds 1 was placed in a sun synchronous orbit and stayed in operations until the end of 2003 uh, when it was decommissioned, followed by the launch of Seabirds 2 which was pretty much identical to its predecessor. And in 2007, the Seabirds 2B was launched, also similar to the two previous members of the series. And that was with the addition of a high-resolution panchromatic camera. 
Now, Seabirds 3 uh, was launched in 2013, but was lost due to an issue in the launch vehicle. Uh, that was a Long March 4B. I couldn't find further details on the failure. And an identical to it was launched, the Seabirds 4, uh, a year after, and that was carrying four cameras, similarly to the previous version, but with different spatial resolutions. So Seabirds 4A is expected to be launched this year. I don't know if that, that is still true, but that was the less I, I found on it. And with that, we can go into crude space. So now it's 2006, and the first Brazilian astronaut was launched into space, and that was Marcos Pontes. He flew aboard the Soyuz rocket. He spent 10 days at the ISS. So Marcos, he's uh, an aerospace engineer and a test pilot for the Brazilian Air Force. And he was selected in 1998 and concluded his training to fly the space shuttle on 2000. But due to budgetary restrictions, NASA postponed his mission to 2003. So a quick parenthesis, in 96, Brazil signed an agreement with the states to participate in, a, in the construction of the ISS. So uh, they needed a NASCAN, uh, an astronaut candidate. And so the original contribution to the ISS was to construct uh, the Technological Experiments Facility, uh, that's the TEF, the Window for Observational Research Facility 2, or WARF 2, uh, they expedite the processing of experiments to space station pallets, Express, that's what it's called, the Unpressurized Logistics Container, ULC, the Cargo Handling Interface Assembly, and the Attachment System, ZLU, LC, which I have no idea what it is. <laughs> so these six elements were uh, the original scope of work that we would contribute to the construction of the ISS. That was an expected investment of 120 million US dollars. And the items were planned to be delivered in 2001. But the lack of budget led to many delays. Later, due to the Columbia disaster, the missions were postponed indefinitely. So in 2005, a partnership agreement with Roscosmos was signed to send Marcos on a Soyuz craft. So they essentially uh, bought a seat in the Soyuz, which is funny because he was already trained and alpha to fly the, the shuttle. But then he got to be trained on another spacecraft as well. So he flew the Soyuz TMA-8 from Baikonur. Kazakhstan and conducted 10 experiments at the ISS in 2006. So the Soyuz seat cost 10 million US dollars to the government at the time. And in 2007, it was officially announced the cancellation of the country's participation in the ISS construction program, which I thought was super sad. So mm -hmm. if you go, I think, uh, to Houston, I was told you can still see the, the Brazilian flag in the ISS program. But unfortunately, it, it turns out that we didn't contribute much, at least not as originally expected. And you can see that that's an ongoing theme of promising big budgets and just delivering very little. So that's what's been holding, setting back most of the, of the program. So there are a couple of rumors that I thought was interesting uh, from uh, that, that John Glenn suggested that, that he should become a politician, Marcus. And after having been the first Brazilian astronaut, now he got appointed as Ministry of Science and Technology. So he is now a politician mm -hmm. and he's responsible for running, among other things, the country's space program. So one can only hope that that's going to bring something good. So now the going to the next uh, attempt as at building a, a program, 
the Alcântara Cyclone Space, ACS. So in 2004, Brazil formed a partnership with Ukraine, and that created a binational uh, company called Alcântara Cyclone Space in 2006. That's when the company began. So a quick side note, in terms of partnership, in 2008, IAB signed uh, an MOU with India to support their lunar mission, and I thought that was worth mentioning as well. Now back to the ACS, right? So the project was based on using the CLA, the Alcantara Launch Center, the private location, uh, to uh, launch the Cyclone 4, a new version of the Ukrainian rocket Cyclone 3. So that was a Yuzhnoi design. It was a three-stage rocket uh, with three engines. So it used the N204 and UDMH as propellants. Uh, it was capable of uh, 5,300 kilograms to LEO and 1,600 kilograms to GTO. So a really large rocket compared to uh, the VLS and all else. So the, the contract was signed in 2014 to launch uh, the QB50, a constellation of 50 CubeSats. Spoiler alert, they were later launched uh, in 2017 by the PLSV rocket. So, yeah. With an ever-growing budget, uh, less approved at 1 billion US dollars and many crises along the program, in 2015, the Brazilian government concluded that the Cyclone 4 would not generate the originally expected profits. And so he canceled the program entirely. So the, the maximum I found of it was uh, a nice picture of the rocket in a hangar. And that's it. So apparently they spent a lot of money and it didn't go too far further. Maybe it's worth mentioning. Uh, I couldn't find the original source for that, but I, I saw a lot of mentions of uh, a WikiLeaks document that was released of the uh, someone, I don't know from which department uh, in the States, saying something to Ukraine. Uh, it was like a telegram saying that they, they should not... They should ensure that technology transfer should not occur to Brazil in terms of uh, vehicle development, launch vehicle developments. And I, I couldn't really find the, the, that primary source for that. So take that with a grain of salt. But apparently that, that happened. Mm -hmm. So come on, American friends, help us out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the SGDC-1, it was another satellite that I think it's interesting to mention. The Satellite Geostacionário de Defesa e Comunicações Estratégicas. So, uh, a strategic uh, communications satellite. And although it's not Brazilian built, it's worth mentioning because uh, we talked about it here in the show in 2017 when it launched. And it was a uh, geostationary communication satellite designed by Thales Lenia uh, for the government and operated by Telebras. I, oh, it was also integrated by Visiona Aerospace a JV between Embraer and Telebras. So it is intended to be a part of a three-satellite constellation. Its main objective is to provide a safe communications platform for the military and also high-speed internet connection for civilian use in remote regions, uh, which Brazil has a lot of. So the SGDC-2 uh, is expected to be contracted in 2019 for a launch in 2022, and the third one should follow that. So I thought that was... Interesting. And then Amazonia 1 is another vehicle, and uh, sorry, another spacecraft. The Amazonia 1 and 1B, they were formally designated as SSS, SSR. Sorry, <laughs> too many S's. It's not, <laughs> it's not the Soviet Union. SSR, the <laughs> Satellite de Sensoriamento Remoto. 
so remote sensing satellite. And they're both expected, so it's the 1 and 1B. They're both expected to launch in 2020 in the PLSV Indian rocket. And Amazonia 1 uh, will carry the AWFI, so same as the Seaburst sets, and operating in the visible and near-infrared band. Now to a program that I think is super nice on paper, but apparently it didn't develop too much. It's called the Cruzeiro do Sul program, so Southern Cross program. In 2005, uh, it was initiated and intended to develop a series of launch vehicles based off of the VLS-1. So the vehicles uh, that were to be developed uh, were the VLS Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Epsilon. And there's a nice picture uh, there's probably going to be in the show notes with each of the vehicles. It's on Wikipedia as well. So VLS Alpha uh, would replace the last stage of the VLS-1 by a liquid fuel stage with 75 kilonewtons of thrust to deliver payloads between 200 and 300 kilograms to 750 kilometers high orbit. So although ambitious, the program was never fulfilled. Uh, but there's a small part of it that was successful and that I think is worth highlighting. And that's the L-75 rocket engine. So 75 kilonewtons of thrust on the last stage. You can connect the dots. That's the L-75. So I, I've, I've actually shared on Twitter once uh, a paper uh, from the development of this engine. And I think it's super interesting and worth looking at because it's like a how-to for liquid rocket engines. It's very uh, nice and very fun read. So the, the beginning was on 2008, the development. And it, it is a gas generator open cycle based engine. It it is initially proposed. Uh, it was initially proposed as a Lox RP1 engine, and then later changed to Lox ethanol. And that's probably due to the abundance of ethanol in Brazil. We have a lot of sugarcane, and it's very cheap. Yeah, yeah. So in 2011, uh, a partnership was established between the EIA and DLR, which is the German Space Center, and the engine was to provide 75 kilonewtons of thrust. Uh, hence the name, and has a specific impulse of uh, 2,940 meters per second in vacuum. So up until now, the EIA and the DLR have uh, designed, manufactured, and tested pre-development models of the turbo pump assembly components, so the LOX pump, the ethanol pump, and the turbine. And as of uh, 2018, there were still pending manufacturing and testing of the engineering models of the engine components, the integration of an entire entire development model of the engine, the critical review of the engine components, and the construction of the engine test stand. So still a lot of uh, ground to cover. And on the EIS official page, the, the project is shown as frozen for now, likely related to funding issues. Hopefully it will pick up soon uh, from where they left off. Hey, Marcus, if you're listening, help, help us out here. <laughs> Let's develop an engine. <laughs> And just to illustrate uh, a bit on the context of uh, the, the program, all of its vehicles are to operate with the L-75 as the upper stage, and a few spin-off LPREs, liquid propellant rocket engines, would serve the lower stages. So the L-300 as an intermediate stage engine, and later the L-1500 as a first stage for the rocket. The very last and greatest capacity rocket, the VLS Epsilon, would bear uh, three of these 1.5 mega newtons 
engines on its first stage and one 300 kilonewton as an intermediate and the 75 as the last stage. So it'd be a rocket similar to the Ariane 4 in terms of size and capacity. So this is about it in terms of development and technology. And then the thing that is not in the notes that I thought was worth mentioning, and it's sort of uh, caught me a bit off guard because it's a later uh, development. Well, it just happened. Is the There's an agreement called the Acordo de Salvaguardas Tecnológicas, uh, which is taking place between Brazil and the US. And it's, think of it as sort of a, special treatment for payloads that contain American-developed space technology. So they're trying to sign this agreement, and apparently they tried to sign it back in 2000, but it didn't work out because uh, the U.S. was asking for a lot. And if they do sign it right now uh, with the, the current changes, Brazil would be authorized to launch American technology from the Alcantara Launch Center. And that essentially opens up the, the market for uh, any sort of uh, launch providers to go and use the launch center. So it's it's a little bit of uh, guidelines for how you need to treat my technology when it's in your country, sort of something like that. So who's authorized to look at, inspect? And then I think the whole thing is just uh, the U.S. is concerned with uh, uh, confidentiality of American tech. So if that goes forward, and Marcos is the one uh, pushing for that to go forward, uh, hopefully the Alcantara Launch Center is going to be better used because currently it's just uh, the infrastructure is there. I, I don't know how much infrastructure really, but from what they're saying, uh, currently is is all up and ready to receive uh, new launchers. So hopefully, maybe we're going to have some Falcon 9s, Falcon Heavies cool. launching from very close to the equator. And if that happens, you are you can be sure that I'm going to be there uh, at least yeah. one day uh, <laughs> watching. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of the jungle. Okay. So that was very long. Hopefully not boring. <laughs> no, no. That was really good. Um, that was awesome. Yeah. And you did it in a lot less time than I thought. You packed a lot in there. Yeah. It's good because Ben helped me out uh, to shorten it because it was very detailed. I can say that I had a lot of fun uh, doing the research and and I tried to be as thorough as possible just because I really wanted to know more about the the actual program and then we had to get rid of like half your research <laughs> right <laughs> yeah there was a lot of uh historical context and a lot of uh, the beginning of you know so i i think it it was good it, it got better as we cut i get a kick out my favorite is how grassrootsy some of the beginnings of things were like the mm -hmm. first rockets were the ime students yep and then the right. first satellite was the dude in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because so much of it depends on simply the people putting their energy and effort and wanting mm -hmm. to do it, right? So you see the, the, the 21 men and women that, that died in the, in the accident. They were essentially living in the middle of, well, the jungle. Sorry for the people from Maranhão. I don't, I don't mean to be... <laughs> to be <laughs> a daycare but seriously they were in a very remote location very humid very harsh environment and they were essentially dedicating their lives to to try and and have a rocket that works and i think that's what's really fascinating and worth uh remembering you know so the 22nd of august brazil needs to remember 
it was, uh, it was a big, big impactful moment for our history. Yeah, and you, uh, you asked to put these, uh, these names in the show notes, and they're, they're definitely going in there. So yeah, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast description to see these twenty-something names. Yeah, so I didn't want to end on a sad note, but <laughs> but it is Too what late. it is. Well, to prevent from ending on a sad note, I guess I will ask: What is the one thing that makes you the most hopeful going forward for the space program in Brazil? Well, currently, I think the the L seventy five is something that I I really wish. Uh, the government decides to put money on because uh, it's a it's a very interesting development and it's a liquid rocket engine. We need one to go to space. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just it can't be just uh, solid solid based. So hopefully, uh, if uh, we we put some money on it, uh, that that should go forward. And then if we if if the the whole uh, confidentiality thing passes through and and we are able to actually uh, rent a little bit our launch towers and and have some space activity here. Hopefully, that's going to generate cash to fund these developments. You know, so I think uh, there's some logic behind the thinking that Marcus is uh, uh, is pushing for, which is make money so we have money to do things. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing if that's really gonna fly. Uh, no pun intended, but hey. <laughs> Uh, if that does fly, hopefully we're going to get some launch vehicles in the near, hey, 10-year window. Yeah. Hopefully. Let's see. Looking forward to it. I would like to see some rockets being launched from Brazilian territory. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to put this together. And um, thank you for putting up with some delays that we ended up having. And it was it was really good to finally hear this. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. See you next time. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have an interesting correction, although I would take issue with that because I don't think it's a correction, but it's a great yeah. elaboration on... Yeah, it's it's a comment. Comment. So so Lee Stevens is actually a communications engineer, so he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, let's start out, Lee said some very nice things in his email, and Lee, that, that made all of us very happy, so thank you. Um, so yeah, so he wanted to talk about Starlink and why it's advantageous to lower the orbit. You had pointed out several reasons, and I was already aware of several reasons why it is advantageous my main point of confusion was just how could they do this so easily and that's kind of what but yeah go ahead uh, there's plenty of great reasons to do that yeah Hmm. okay so first spacex stands to gain significant advantages in all three aspects of the holy trinity of signaling which is a great phrase uh, Mm -hmm. bandwidth latency and power so by virtue of the uh square cubed law um just just by dropping their orbital altitude, I mean, it's it's a decent amount, but by dropping their orbital altitude, they're going to be gaining approximately 400% uh, signal strength just by getting closer to the target. It's 400% increase. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So uh, that signal strength increase means that you get to increase your bandwidth because you have um, better uh, signal-to-noise ratios. You can decrease the power draw from ground units. This is actually something that I totally didn't think about. The units on the ground don't have to spend as much energy you know, shooting photons into the sky, which mm-hmm. as we were talking about this last week, I was saying, okay, it's it's the ground units that 
that I'm really worried about. I think that's where the innovation is going to come from. And that's where we haven't seen any, any real indication of, of what's happening. And this is going to do it. Like that's going to make it so much easier. Lee even talked about how you could potentially run a ground station off of a fairly small uh, solar cell because, you know, you, you don't have to push as hard. Um, you get a longer life for electronic circuits. That's both in space and on the ground because you're not having to run such high voltage. You get a lower EMI impact on neighboring signals, which is also fantastic. And then you also dramatically reduce latency. And I had considered this, but I was only thinking space to ground. But he points out that you also get a latency boost um, from satellite to satellite. And hmm. that that density increase as you get everybody closer together means that the whole system is going to experience much better latency, which is really cool and really something I hadn't thought about. But there are going to be more satellites in a higher orbit. And I imagine to get around the planet, they might have to communicate yeah. Yeah, you might have to bounce up higher, but, you know. But um, then, so, I mean, like, overall, it's the same difference in time delay. Although, I guess it wouldn't be. Like, you know, just back of the napkin, like, just let's be reasonable. At best, it affects half of your, half the path of your signal. It's probably going to be more than that. But, like, even even if if you lower half of the satellites, it seems reasonable to say that at least it's going to, uh, benefit half of the signal length as you're bouncing mm-hmm. around, right? So you, it's it's definitely not it's the same distance. Like there is some improvement there. I guess it depends on, and and this just goes to show how much I don't know about how the actual internet works. But uh, depending on where the transmission is going, if it's from one side of the planet to the other, you could put that lower orbit satellite, you know, 200 miles up, 300, 500, it kind of doesn't matter because like ultimately it has to go to the higher satellite, which will then communicate in a, not, I mean, not necess- have to to- it's not necessarily going to have to go up to the higher altitude. It might, okay. but not necessarily. And even if it does, um, that also works the other way around. What if your base station is talking to a high altitude satellite, the high altitude says, okay, we need to get this to the other side of the earth. And then it bounces it off a bunch of low altitude satellites because they have a, uh, shorter path mm-hmm. to get, to get to the other side of the earth. It seems to me that the lower satellites are sort of like the middle point and it kind of doesn't matter like where you put them. It's the higher satellite that ultimately has to make yeah, the jump across Yeah, you're thinking the that, the, that the low satellites are going to be less likely to be able to see each other, to have line of sight to another low satellite. Yeah, just depending on where the transmission's going. So less likely in some sense, yeah, because, you know, the yeah, curvature of the Earth. Less so. likely, but dramatically more likely than if they weren't there at all. Right. I agree that overall it's mostly an advantage. I, I was just thinking worst case, or not worst case, but if you have to go from, you know, America to Australia, and that's like the type of transmission you're making, I think you'd have to use those higher orbiting satellites, I, I think right? it, it's less about where your origin and destination are and more about what the constellation looks like at that moment Mm -hmm. um whether you can do everything in low orbit or whether you have to get bounced up to a higher orbit yeah that's that's kind of what why i was kind of stepping back during this because i also am not very sure about how this is supposed to all pan out but i can imagine under some circumstances where you don't have to actually reach out to these higher orbit ones and then the latency again four times better right you actually wouldn't ever have to i mean you can do it all just i think in lower orbit you would just have to go from one satellite to the next and then to another one you could just sort of like leapfrog your way around the planet but the question is which is faster and they have these higher orbiting satellites and there must be a reason for that right so what's the reason other than well the 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 so the what the radial component 
that's a big change. That's a factor of two in time, right? Because it's twice mm -hmm. as far. Right. Yeah. But as far as the horizontal component, I mean, this is two pi radius of the Earth plus 500 kilometers compared to two pi radius of the Earth plus mm -hmm. 1,000 kilometers. So not that big a difference um, as a mutually. Well, and, and who knows? Um, so, so having those higher altitude satellites is a benefit because it allows you to cover more area with fewer satellites. So depending on how things turn out, it may be that you're more often talking directly to a high altitude satellite because you're more likely to have one of those in your sky. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it's, it's really going to be interesting to see how this engineering turns out. Could it, could it also work out how, you know, well, you know, you're just browsing the internet. So you're talking to yeah. these higher one, uh, you know, the higher orbit ones, and then suddenly you start watching Netflix mm -hmm. on, you know, 4K, and then boom, you're taxing a lot more of these lower yeah. ones. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, actually, is that, yeah, the higher orbit ones, it might be for lower capacity types of internet. Like if you're just browsing like web pages or something like that, you know. I, I think like you'd be more likely to see... Um, if they're going to divide things up by bandwidth, I think you'd be more likely to see higher paying customers getting faster bandwidth rather than people drawing on the system more. But I don't know. I don't think I don't think anybody who doesn't work for Starlink knows at this point. <laughs> and maybe they don't know either. You know, they're probably still working on this architecture. OK, so thanks, Lee. We appreciate that. And then we don't have any upcoming space flight events this week. Yep. So we're just going to go straight to the outro. It's time to do up with the show. We'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. <laughs>